Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University, who normally joins us from lovely Johannesburg, but today still on his holidays in Tokyo, Japan. Uh, out from behind the Great Firewall in China is Kobus van Staden. Thank you so much for joining us again today. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We are the first show of the year in 2015. We had a wonderful year in 2014. We hope you had a chance to take a listen to our year in review. Well, today we're going to talk about a cluster of stories that have started off the new year all together. We think there was about four stories in three weeks on a single topic of China outsourcing to Africa. And that Cobus represents what I think is a meme. Uh, and so we're going to kind of dive right into it. It's basically cut into two pieces here. There was two or three stories that came out on apparel and textile exporting uh, or outsourcing to Africa, and then also on steel outsport. Let's start with steel, Cobus. Give us the headline on what's going on on the steel side and what people are saying in terms of now this really major development from Hebei Iron and Steel Company and what they want to do in South Africa. So Hebei is has announced that they are moving uh, a, a significant chunk of their of their um, steel production to South Africa, um, and it's um, it's going to actually make up you know kind of a significant part of South Africa's entire national steel production. Um, I think something like two thirds, um, and it's essentially um, you know kind of trying to 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 it's, it's trying to do two things. In the first place, trying to to really move Hebei more globally um, and in the second place trying to clean up Herbeck province which is incredibly polluted and right next to Beijing which is also incredibly polluted um, my lungs now tell me um, and um, you know could have, so, so it's, it's part of, of responding to Xi Jinping's drive to, to clean up the environment a little bit um, you know responding to popular pressure in China while also trying to, to, to um, ease up the, the the glut of overproduction um, in the steel industry in China. Okay, so uh, this this announcement came back in November, and Adam Minter in Bloomberg wrote a really great piece. Uh, Beijing begins to say farewell to made in China. And again, that's one of the themes that you're hearing is no more made in China, made in Africa. And we're going to get to a discussion of that meme uh, later in the show. But let's go back to what Hebei Iron and Steel is doing here. They are uh, the largest steelmaker by production in China, and they're moving 5 million tons of its annual production, about 11% of the total uh, that they make. They do about 45 million tons of steel every year to South Africa. That's sizable because it's the first time that we've seen this amount of steel outsourcing to South Africa. You mentioned pollution is one very important reason. Uh, China is choking, particularly Beijing is choking on pollution. Uh, steel production is, of course, a major source of that pollution, particularly in northern China. Hebei is in the north there. Uh, too much capacity, too little domestic demand. Now, this is a very interesting problem that China has. They have literally created way too much steel. Uh, and, and they are coming under a lot of global pressure for flooding the global market with uh, low-cost steel. So there's dumping pressure coming from the United States and the World Trade Organization. So that may be another reason why they want to shift some of their production outside of China so that they don't become susceptible too much to these dumping pressures. And then, of course, then there's this theme of li rising labor costs. Now, rising labor costs at the state-owned enterprises is less of an issue than some of the private factories that are out there. But that's still one of the questions that's driving this trend towards more outsourcing in South Africa and elsewhere. 
Let me ask you, Kobus, about steel business in South Africa, because they seem to be the only country in Africa that could be able to handle this type of industrial production. Do you see anywhere else that can actually produce steel on any type of volume that would be able to kind of change the global market in any way? No, not in Africa, I, I think. Um, the... I think w- w- one of the significant issues um, in, in moving moving this production to Africa is that, you know, as you mentioned, everywhere else China is, being, is, is facing a lot of anti-dumping pressure. So there are anti- anti-dumping lawsuits relating to steel coming up um, in, a, in a few different markets. Um, I think Africa is essentially the only place where, where cheap Chinese steel is really going to be just welcomed with open arms. Um, and I think moving it, moving the production to South Africa is significant because South Africa itself has a steel industry. Um, so, you know, kind of uh, positioning it, you know, kind of in South Africa means that, that in, in selling all this cheap steel to, to the rest of Africa, Hebei is, 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 is maneuvering to not be in direct competition with South Africa, but kind of being a kind of a, a South African producer in a way. And so so it's kind of covering its bases by aligning itself with, with the South African government's investment plans, while also, you know, kind of essentially kind of undercutting the South African steel industry. Um, so it's going to be very interesting to see how that how that plays out politically within South Africa. But in terms of, of, of other African steel producers, I don't really see on, on the horizon. Well, let's talk about the domestic politics in South Africa, because that's been an issue with Chinese investment uh, over the past year. Uh, Beijing um, uh, Automotive Works, uh, they started up a factory there, but the unions weren't very happy with that. Um, we've seen in, in, over the past two or three years, the arrival of the Chinese in South Africa met with a mixed response. How do you think the unions and other political actors in, in South Africa will, will greet the news of Hobe Iron and Steel's investment there? One thing to keep in mind about South Africa is that it's a, a culture of of public dispute. You know, in, in the sense that that any kind of problem, any kind of potential problem, kind of gets played out in a kind of a theatre of of protest. Um, so when the unions are protesting, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're fundamentally opposed to to the kind of investment. It means that they try that they're that they're trying to gain ground in in a kind of a a, a never ending kind of fight for you know for influence with the ruling party and the government and other and and big business. So you know it's not necessarily when when you, when workers are are protesting in the streets in South Africa that doesn't necessarily mean that they're fundamentally opposed to the investment. It simply means that they they staking their claim and 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 you know kind of making making clear that anyone who who kind of pushes workers um interest too far off the table is going to face a lot of problems um so it, it is possible to kind of overread kind of worker protests in south africa because that's simply the way it is this kind of political theater that how, how business is done in south africa but at the same time south african unions are strong um stronger than anywhere else on on the continent and you know kind of wages are quite high in South Africa comparatively. Um, so, and the unions are not, you know, kind of not not really prepared to kind of, you know, accept any kind of lower wages. So it's going to be interesting to see whether it's possible to, you know, kind of to really fit this into the South African labor landscape while still making profits. You know, kind of any, any business that's really based on low wages, you know, South Africa is probably not the perfect place for that kind of business because 
because it's you know because of the, because the unions are so strong and because they're politically so connected. Um, so you know, kind of in in that sense, South Africa is very different from a place like Ethiopia. You know, kind of that that is mentioned a lot in terms of the garment industry. So with the news that the Chinese are outsourcing to places like South Africa, I think there must be a sigh of relief being breathed in places like Zambia, uh, which are the major iron ore uh, sources. And in some senses that the Chinese aren't simply cutting their production, but actually outsourcing it to other countries uh, means that there is still going to be at least some tepid demand for iron ore, because what we've seen in China now over the past, say, 12 to 18 months is a real slowing of the economy. There is less building. The anti-corruption campaign by Xi Jinping is really having an effect on the economy. There is an effort, and I say an effort, it's not necessarily a successful effort, at realigning the economy away from the state-owned enterprise-driven system that isn't really very efficient in terms of capital allocation. Uh, that, that process is underway. All of that affects down the supply chain to the iron ore producers. So now the iron ore producers in some ways will be sending some of their product to South Africa and some of it back to China, but at least it will keep the price support for iron ore, which has been struggling over the past six months. So I think that's interesting, and I'm just wondering what you think about all of this in terms of the iron ore, which is the key ingredient in steel, uh, which has a lot more effect across Africa. Yeah, in a way, you know, kind of this actually makes a lot of sense because South Africa itself is a big iron ore producer and it's also a big coal producer. Um, and a lot of its iron ore and coal had simply been shipped to China. So now, you know, kind of it actually makes sense to move the to move the, the, the steel production to South Africa in the sense that you then, you know, kind of you, you're cutting out this like weird loop of, of shipping raw materials, you know, kind of halfway across the, the world and then selling the steel back to Africa. Um, so the, so that in that sense, it makes sense. I mean, what I'm wondering about is um, whether the positioning of of this, you know, kind of of, of this production in, in Africa indicates an expectation that that they hope to sell a lot of steel to Africa. You know, kind of that there is a that there is a an expectation that because African economies are some of the only economies in the world that are really growing at any kind of real rates, that they are going to be needing steel, um, and whether that's a, that's really a realistic kind of expectation. Yeah, I mean, well, Africa is urbanizing, uh, so it's. It, but again, when we say Africa, it's difficult to kind of export steel from South Africa all the way up to North Africa, simply because the transport lines are not necessarily, at least on the on the ground, are not as reliable as maybe by by ship. But certainly, South Africa could export steel to anywhere in the world from 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 there from its ports in Cape Town and whatnot. So um, it may be for the African market. It obviously may be for the global market. Let's move on to garments now. There were two stories that came out, one in Gulf Times, Asia garment industry faces Africa as emerging competitor, and then a very interesting story that came out on Al Jazeera, focusing on the specifics of Ethiopia, a booming business, underpaid workers, talking about how China may be exporting its low-wage model to places like Ethiopia, and, uh, and the fact that Ethiopia itself does not have any minimum wage laws. Now, that's a very interesting aspect here, because we talked about in steel that there's a rising labor cost. Well, definitely in the apparel and the garment, this low-tech business in China, there's the, the wages have been rising quite a bit. But I think it's important to talk about the context. And this is what I thought was missing in these stories, 
was that although there has been some movement of production outside of China in the garment industry uh, to Africa, particularly to Ethiopia, it is really just a drop in the bucket. So right now, Huajin, which is one of the largest shoe manufacturers, and they're a contract shoe manufacturer for many of the world's leading brands, uh, they do. They have about 3,000 workers in Ethiopia, and they're doing about $20 million worth of exports. So to start off our conversation, Kobus, I want to kind of put this in context. And this is an industry that I actually know quite well living here in Vietnam, which is also the beneficiary of some of the China outsourcing, uh, and where a lot of big manufacturers are moving their shoe manufacturing, for example. And it was explained to me that every year, human beings purchase 13 billion pairs of shoes. It's a really a remarkable number. You think about, what, six or seven billion people on the earth, each has about two pairs of shoes. Well, maybe some of the rich people have 50 pairs of shoes and the poor people have one, fair enough. But at the same time, 3,000 people making 20 million worth of exports compared to 13 billion pairs of shoes sold every year, 12 billion of those are made in China. So in that context, what Ethiopia is doing is really an insignificant rounding error. Yes, no, absolutely. I, I suppose, you know, the, the significance is, is, is more, you know, kind of that it's kind of a, a you know, an emerging trend, um, you know, that and, and I suppose journalists are kind of jumping on it, you know, kind of as as such in the sense that, you know, kind of it's, it's not really competing number wise, but it might be an interesting indication. But in, in that well, sense, in that case, in I wish of, they would have said that instead. What yeah. they say is these a lot of these kind of like dramatic headlines like, you know, Africa is now the new China. Uh, you know, and, and how it's really, they don't put it in that broader context, which I think is a mistake. Exactly. And I think also it's not actually as new as it seems, because, you know, kind of like I, you know, kind of if, you, if you take a walk through a gap, for example, you know, kind of China isn't the only place and Cambodia and Bangladesh aren't the only places where people are producing like that. People have been producing in North Africa for a long time. You know, kind of people have been sti- having stuff stitched in Morocco and Tunisia um, and, and so on for, for a while. So, you know, producing in, in on the, along, along the rim, the kind of easily shippable kind of port cities of, of, of Africa is, you know, kind of, it's not necessarily that new. Well, the key differentiator between Ethiopia and China is the fact that in Ethiopia, entry-level salaries range between $35 and $40 a month, whereas in China now, they're going between $500 and $600 a month. And that's a big thing. But the one thing to also keep in mind when you talk to manufacturers, they will tell you that labor is a very important part of the cost structure, but it's not the most important always. So you have a supply chain that has to come in. You have exports that have to go out. You have a very complex network of infrastructure requirements that are there that a lot of places in Africa simply don't have right now. So when we, you hear the complaints from Africans talking about why can't China set up the jobs here, well, it's not necessarily China's fault, in part because the taxing authorities aren't there. The freeways aren't there to put the trucks back out. The source supplies coming in from with raw materials from uh, other parts of the world because these are global operations, those aren't there. So there's a lot of factors that go into it more than wages. I think the obsession with wages misses the, uh, these other elements of manufacturing, which are also very important. Let's go yeah. to this uh, very quickly to this article in, in Gulf Times, where, again, another one of my kind of pet peeves with foreign reporting on Africa is the kind of taking of one country and calling it Africa. So in this case, they're talking about Ethiopia, and then they say Africa as a shorthand for for the whole continent, which just drives me crazy. But there's three kind of key reasons that I'd like to get your feedback on about what is driving this trend. Number one is they say it's quicker and cheaper to ship textile products from Africa 
to the main markets in Europe and the U.S. That's one advantage that Africa has. Again, I will dispute that, but what's your take on that? It is if the ports work. You know, kind of, um, in, and and depending again on where in Africa you are, because it's not necessarily, it's not to, you know, kind of fastest to ship it from South Africa, but it, it might be faster to ship it from Mombasa or from you know, or for, from um, from Ethiopia. Um, but you know, kind of, it depends very much on what's happening in the Gulf of Aden, and it depends on you know, kind of like what you know, it depends on a whole bunch of things. Potentially, it could be, but not necessarily. Okay, uh, African countries have duty-free access to the U.S. through AGOA, the African Growth and Opportunity. Opportunity Act. Uh, they are their special trade trade agreement signed in 2000. Now this is interesting because the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, Treaty, is being negotiated right now here in Southeast Asia. That does not include China. So if TPP actually does go through, that may mitigate and make it more complicated for the Africans to claim that as an advantage, or certainly Ethiopia to claim that as an advantage. What about the the the, the duty free access to the U.S. market? Yeah, you know, kind of that, that seems theoretically to be to be uh, you know kind of a, an important point. Um, so far, the Africans haven't really been using that that AGOA access that much. And in the cases with the, the cases that I've read where they actually have been, it's actually been via Chinese investment. So what what I understood is that you know kind of some in in countries like Lesotho, for example, you know kind of Taiwanese and Chinese um, textile manufacturers have set up factories in order that in in specifically in order to make use of AGOA. Um, but, you know, kind of from what I understand, it's the, the, the numbers of exports are actually still really small. Mm-hmm. Well, the third reason that they brought up in this, again, Gulf Times article was the use of the expanding use of native cotton production in uh, Africa. Now, Mozambique is a major cotton producer. I think Zimbabwe is as well. That eastern corridor along the coast there produces quite a bit of cotton. So that gives it an advantage over China. What's your thought? Yeah, I guess so. Again, it 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 depends on roads. You know, it depends on speed, and it also depends on processing. Because raw cotton isn't as useful as processed cotton. So you know, kind of whether it, it depends a lot on whether whether the African countries can actually get it together to really process enough cotton to you know kind of to to supply you know kind of a, a chain like H and M for example, um, and that that I think is, is still a, a big if, especially in the case of of places like Zimbabwe where there's so many, you know, the, the sanctions is such a problem, infrastructure is such a problem, politics is a problem. Um, so, you know, again, in, it, it's potentially good in the future, but I'm not sure whether it's good right now. And it's one of those things that I think is counterintuitive in globalization. When you ask somebody in the United States whether it's cheaper to manufacture a product that's sold in the United States in the United States, well, the obvious answer is, well, yeah, of course, it doesn't have to travel 6,000 miles away. You don't have all the logistics across continents and time zones. But in fact, it can be cheaper by a factor of three or four to produce it in a place like China or Vietnam. So I think Mm. a lot of these are common sense types of reasons, which when you factor in the efficiency of globalization and global shipping and global manufacturing and and supply chain management that's come into it, uh, intuitively you'd say, well, yes, it's better to use African cotton and and then produce in Africa and then ship from Africa into the United States because Africa is closer to the United States. That may actually not be true. I am not a specialist in global supply chain management or in in global manufacturing, but one of the reasons that China and Vietnam and Bangladesh have fared so well is because they've been able to build an economy of scale. 
that makes it so much cheaper than producing anywhere else in the world. And I think Africa struggles a lot with its regulatory infrastructure and then its physical infrastructure that may not make this common sense actually come true. Yes, I agree. Um, I also think that, you know, so far, Africa, African governments haven't yet shown the kind of planning and, you know, kind of, and uh, how can I say, it was almost, almost kind of business vision, you know, kind of to really push this through. Um, they seem to be very, very dependent on, on kind of outside investment um, and on trying to lure kind of outside investors rather than really, you know, attempting to kind of drive the ship, you know, kind of, or, you know, kind of, or steer, steer, uh, you know, kind of, a uh, uh, Kind of clear-eyed, independent development strategy, and I mean this is a this is a gross overgeneralization, and I'm sure it's not true for many African governments. But I, you know, kind of even in the case of of this kind of emerging integrated East East African um, development sector, of which you know Ethiopia is is a is a prime part. I still haven't really seen a kind of a, you know, um, Vietnam style, Cambodia style, you know, kind of like plan to develop to develop that region as a whole, you know, kind of and, and to kind of to take to take hold of of its um, of of its potential. And at the same time, there hasn't seen so far there hasn't really seemed to, to be the development of a focus on Africans as consumers as much as there should be, because the one the one gap there that that is not mentioned is the fact that Africa is one of is, is an emerging consumer market that is really much like much less served than any other consumer market in the world. So Africans need almost everything. Um, you know, kind of they want to buy more shoes, they want to buy more clothes, they want to buy more of everything, and there hasn't really been they aren't really they don't really seem to be plans in place to supply them with that stuff yeah um you know kind of and that seems to be a, a really glaring gap well i think it's going to be interesting to see the the manufacturing culture clash that may emerge as more chinese manufacturers do come to places like ethiopia and it's interesting because when i was reading this article by simona fulton in uh, on al jazeera ethiopia booming business underpaid workers uh it you know for anybody who's been following china's manufacturing over the past 20 years all of this is very familiar in that in china's example it was the taiwanese and the koreans and the hongkongese who came into china set up these factories now they had a very very poorly trained workforce very low education no real kind of work discipline because they came out of this communist state-owned enterprise structure and so what ended up happening was the people from Taiwan and Korea, for example, a lot of them were ex-military, and they ran these factories like military brigades, where people show up exactly at a certain time, they have to stand, they have to salute, they have to do exercises together. And I think for people in the West, it was a little shocking to see, because we have this idea of a factory that's really born from the kind of uh, industrial revolution in England, uh, which is, again, it's a horrific place, but at the same time, there is some autonomy and independence, and that's not the way it was done in China, and it's not the way that the Chinese seem to be running, or at least Hua Jin seems to be running its operations in Ethiopia. So there's one kind of line that stood out at the top of this article, quote, our factory is a bit like a military organization. The labor here is not highly educated, so we have to use a very simple way to communicate and organize them, said Nara Joe, Hua Jin's spokeswoman, as she walks through the aisles of the large factory hall. And so what's interesting is I think Western observers um, are going to, I think, react strongly to the growing presence of Chinese manufacturing in Africa. And I have a feeling that African kind of uh, interest groups and special interest groups and the critics of China 
will often find this as something that they will go after and the way that they will do it. Now, some of it is absolutely justified. The way that a lot of the Chinese treat workers uh, is not well, let's say they're not very well well known for, for proper and good CSR on this front. So there may be some room for criticism. There also may be just some lack of understanding of what it actually takes to make a shoot today in the modern workplace and what it takes to make uh, jeans. It's tough, grinding, brutal work that needs to be highly disciplined and highly organized in order for it to run. So I think there's going to be, if we see more of this trend in fact happening uh, a culture clash that may come. What's your What's your opinion? What do you think on that? Yes, this brings us back to South Africa, and this, you know, in the sense that there are different labor cultures in Africa, um, and I mean, it's it's it is very interesting the the fact that Ethiopia doesn't have a minimum wage. Um, you know, the it's it's it, I agree with you. It's it's it is going to be very interesting, and it's going to be very interesting to see whether. You know, kind of how how the how this kind of um, you know management culture will have to adapt to to, to deal with with with, Af- with African realities. Because I you know kind of I, I have my doubts whether this kind of East Asian kind of semi militaristic kind of management system will necessarily work. Um, you know, kind of there might there might be other more efficient ways of of arranging stuff uh, in an African context that is going to make less people angry. Um, I actually wanted to ask you how how. Much of a problem do you think this this lack of a minimum wage in Ethiopia is? It seems to me that the you know kind of the, that China has kind of essentially set a template, you know, kind of a development template, which is has been followed by places like Cambodia and Bangladesh, in the sense that you start with kind of you know really really low wages with essentially almost no worker rights, and then slowly but surely as the country becomes richer, there's there's you know kind of salaries start rising and worker rights start coming in. So it's not a model of like you start with basic fantastic kind of you know kind of worker legislation and then you develop your economy from that base. Rather, you start essentially with a horrible situation and then you add, you kind of improve it marginally as it goes on. Do you think that, is, is that a viable model for Africa or do you think that the, the fact that there is no minimum wage is actually a really fundamental problem in Ethiopia? Well, again, this depends on which side of the ledger you're on. So hmm. if we take Southeast Asia as a model, and I think a lot of people, particularly in Africa, when they hear the word Asia, people tend to think of Taiwan, Korea, Japan, even now China. And, 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 you know, these highly developed societies. And when you think of a country like Vietnam, which is a direct competitor now for this low-wage labor, um, they are at the 50% point of the economic development of Africa. So Vietnam, half of Africa is more developed and wealthier, and half of Africa is poorer. So they're right smack in the middle. And Cambodia is, in fact, much poorer than most of Africa, and so is Bangladesh. So I think these are actually apropos comparisons to make in terms of economic development. What you've said is, in fact, the path that most countries in this part of the world have been taking. They, they start with very, very kind of low barriers to entry, low barriers for, for growth, uh, no minimum wage laws, very low environmental regulations, uh, and, and, and basically no other restrictions on, on coming in in order to get people employed. And then as wages start to rise, as demand starts to rise, then obviously the quality of the, of the protections go up. There was simply... You know, again, reading this article, there was an implication that says that having no minimum wage law is inherently a bad thing. I guess the problem with that thinking is that if you put a minimum wage law that is too high or worker protections that are too high, then these companies won't come. Then what you have to do is ask the workers, would you rather work in a situation that is difficult, painful, 
uh, potentially even dangerous, or no work at all. And what we have found from the research here in Southeast Asia, they've done a lot of labor research in places like Pakistan, India, is that a lot of people say, I will take the risks, I will work the long hours, I will work for low wages just to get something going and just to get food on the table uh, in the hope that there will be a better tomorrow. It's rooted in optimism because in many places like in Ethiopia and in Cambodia and in Bangladesh, uh, even here in Vietnam, there simply isn't another alternative. So... I am not saying this. Please, I don't want anybody to misunderstand me that I am advocating for for the no wage, no minimum wage laws that they have in Ethiopia. I do suggest that it is more complicated than most Westerners frame it and most NGOs frame it. Certainly this article had a tilt that implied that a no minimum wage law was a bad thing. Uh, I, I, I wonder if there is, and I'm just putting the question out there, I'm not suggesting or advocating for it because I know this is a very sensitive topic. But if you have these minimum wage laws that make it difficult for companies to come in like the Chinese, then they may not come in because they will simply find somewhere that is cheaper. Yeah, I mean, you know, kind of comparing that to the South African situation, South Africa has minimum wage and it has quite progressive labor legislation. But, but, but you know, certain communities in South Africa also have 80% unemployment. Um, and you find yourself in, you know, kind of, in, in which, and high unemployment, especially high youth unemployment, which keep in mind that's, that Africa is a younger continent than anywhere else, has a, a real impact on the society as a whole. And also, you know, kind of, you, you find yourself in a weird situation where, you know, in in my my own experience, like you know, the domestic labour is a big thing in South Africa, and you know, kind of so so even quite you know, kind of middle class people, lower middle class people frequently have maids because there's so many people unemployed. You know, kind of people who would be who are desperate for for any kind of work, and domestic labour is one place where they work. So you have the situation. I don't have a maid, and I don't like that that situation. I don't like that that relationship with you know, kind of with someone, and I don't think of myself as an employer in that way. But I do find my Myself coming under a lot of pressure from people asking me why I don't want to employ them and then offering to work for me at like a, a quarter of minimum wage. You know, kind of, so you have a situation where you get, you, you find the, the, the people who are supposed to be protected by the labor legislation actually actively undercutting that same legislative labor legislation in order to find work. You know, kind of, so it's, it, you know, kind of, it, it's such a difficult, complicated situation. Um, people want to work, you know, and, um, and in, in certain cases, you know, kind of a quite progressive labor legislation has this kind of unintended consequence of actually weirdly keeping people out of the work that they kind of want to do um you know but but all of that takes place in within a larger context of just desperation and need you know yeah. kind of, which you know it's, it's such a complicated horrible situation and that is uh, very common here in countries like vietnam uh, simona fulton she ends the piece and just kind of will end our show on this on this theme just so i want to make sure i give the other side she ends it by kind of focusing on how trade unions and and some kind of improvement in working conditions will actually help African countries, particularly Ethiopia, she's talking about, avoid some of the problems that have been experienced here in Ethiopia. And she quotes uh, a textile manufacturer, and he says, if the government takes the necessary measures in the beginning, the industry will not be disturbed later on, like we see in the experiences of Far East Asia. So I'm not too clear on what they're talking about, the, the disruptions that they're talking about here, but we've had Obviously, a, you know, a lot of fluctuality, fluctuations in, in labor conditions. You know, in Bangladesh, there have been the huge fires. And there's been no worker protections there. Certainly in China, there's been lots of documentation of abuse. 
Uh, so really what they're saying, I guess, is that if Ethiopia is progressive and, and has a little bit of foresight, not something I necessarily associate with the government in Addis Ababa, um, they they can avoid some of those problems by implementing at least a basic minimum wage law, low as it may be. So that's the thought. You know, so Kobus, just final thoughts now on terms of this trend. We've had four articles in about four or five weeks on this. I'm not sure, again, if there's some kind of why this happened to this cluster. This happens from time to time. Do you see this as a reasonable trend or do you see this as dots on a map that kind of highlight the exceptions? I see it as a as a trend, but not as a trend of necessarily China massively outsourcing to Africa. I think it's it's la- rather part of a, a trend of China Chinese business try looking around the world for you know kind of for for outsourcing opportunities. So I don't think you know the you know China China Africa has its own as a discourse it has its own kind of momentum. So anything that happens on the China Africa you know radar tends to kind of kind of get blown up as a China Africa story, while frequently it should actually. Be rather be seen as a China globalization story. It's a much um, so I think it's it's important to to look at at how this compares to China's outsourcing to Latin America, China's outsourcing to Southeast Asia, and so on. So I don't think Africa rates particularly high in that stakes, but it you know kind of it might be indicative of a wider move towards greater outsourcing from China. Um, and in that sense, you know, kind of it needs to be read in, in the context of domestic Chinese politics, um, especially you know kind of anxieties within China around pollution and um, you know kind of um, you know kind of the slowing of the. Chinese economy and the restructuring of the Chinese economy. Well, we'd love to hear what you think. What do you think about China's outsourcing to Africa? Steel, shoes, apparel, all of it is coming, uh, again, in debatable amounts and for debatable reasons. But it is a very sensitive issue because it touches on so many of the key points in terms of that people have been frustrated with the Chinese in Africa, hiring of local workers, making investments, not simply having what a lot of people think is a colonial relationship. This would be an inversion of that colonial relationship, not simply exporting raw materials back to China then to be sold as finished goods in Africa or elsewhere, but actually making the stuff in Africa. So it, it is potentially a profound change if it does, in fact, come true. We would love to hear from you. Facebook is by far the best way to stay in touch with us. Kobus and I are updating the page uh, almost uh, 24 hours a day now. Kobus from, well, when he's in, in Africa, this, he's been in Asia recently, but uh, when uh, we're, we're doing every three or four hours the latest articles. So it's a great kind of news feed to stay on top of China-Africa developments. Uh, Kobus, if people want to follow you elsewhere in terms of what you're reading and writing, what's the best way for them to stay in touch with you? I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesque, that's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E, and I'll be back on Twitter much more, you know, than I was while I was in China. And uh, yes, in China, you can't really get access to Twitter unless you get behind the, uh, the get on a VPN there, which is getting more and more difficult now. Uh, but uh, you can find me on Twitter as well at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting the top China and Africa stories almost every day. And then, of course, if you want to follow this podcast, hey, we've got a partnership with China File, which is a great website, probably the best website out there for China news, insight, political analysis. Uh, So you can follow the podcast there. Just look for the China and Africa podcast. And of course, the best way is over on SoundCloud or on iTunes. So until next time, we'll be back with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.